I just really felt with the help of a good doctor kind of being real with me and walking me through the options, I felt empowered. And I felt all of a sudden, like, this was my responsibility, I could take control over it. And I had a way to stop this from happening to me. And I think I took drastic measures, right? I took everything out, everything that had the potential to get cancer. UC Health presents the Every Podcast Series. We're taking our signature health and wellness event celebrating all women and breaking it down into episodes where we'll speak with special guests and top experts on issues including stress, insomnia, relationships, life changes, and how to balance all of it. Hosted by me, Gloria Neal. I'm a former news anchor and a reporter and currently... Denver Director of Public Affairs. We are here to help you live your best life, physically as well as emotionally. You know, as a woman, we like to share information. And when it comes to our health, women often rely on each other to discuss issues they're too embarrassed to raise with their doctor sometimes. While this can be helpful, it can also spread misinformation that is not only confusing but dangerous. With the advent of the internet, Finding information online is easy and anonymous, but more often than not, the information is either wrong or it leads people down a rabbit hole that is ultimately more anxiety-producing than helpful. For Kristen, who we just heard from, having factual information from her doctor about her genetic predisposition to cancer led her to be proactive and get a double mastectomy and have her ovaries removed. Knowing the facts allowed Kristen to take control of her health. Being proactive about our health is something we all can do. Our expert today is Dr. Lisa Wynn, Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UC Health Highlands Ranch Hospital. She is a strong believer in women self-advocating and arming themselves with facts in order to make self and informed decisions. Dr. Wynn, hello. Hi, how are you? I am good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. You are welcome. So as an OBGYN, you have no doubt counseled lots of women on being proactive about their health and the health risks. So Kristen's story that we just heard strikes me as somewhat unique since, you know, she did something that's still sort of new and that is genetic testing. Can you explain what that is? Also, who needs it and why is it so important? So genetic testing is a way that we can look at our DNA to see if there are any mutations that increase the risk of developing cancer. We know that there are certain mutations like BRCA1 and BRCA2 that increase a woman's lifetime risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer. They can also increase the risk for men to develop breast cancer as well. So as we counsel women about their health and their health history, we review the family history to see who has cancer, how old were they when they got it, what type of cancers are there. And if there seems to be a pattern, then we recommend genetic counseling and testing. Right. Now, I have had the BRCA1 and BRCA2. My mother was a breast cancer survivor. She didn't die from breast cancer, even though she has passed. But here is the thing. So many times women get these tests and they think, oh, then I don't have these mutations, so I can never get breast cancer. That is not the case. The mutations are only responsible for about 5 to 10% of breast cancers that we see. The key to really understanding those test results 
are knowing the person who got the cancer in the first place. Did they have a mutation? Sometimes we're only testing the daughters or the sisters. We're not actually testing the woman who had the breast cancer. So we don't know what caused her breast cancer. Premenopausal breast cancer certainly increases your risk that it could come from a genetic mutation, but not all premenopausal breast cancers come from that. Right. Unless you know the person who had the cancer, if they had a mutation, then if anybody else does not have the same mutation, their risk returns to the baseline risk of the population. So the baseline risk for breast cancer is one in eight. So in other words, if you are a woman, you mm-hmm. have a one in eight chance of getting it, whether you have the BRCA gene, period. Correct. If you have the BRCA gene, then it increases. Yes. And then, of course, when you go through menopause, Mm -hmm. it increases or decreases depending upon who you are, right? Correct. Oh, Lord, honey, just that alone. So complicated. (laughs) (laughs) But it's good to know and be in tune with those risks. It is good to know. And we've certainly identified women who are at risk for having breast cancer or ovarian cancer or even colon and endometrial cancer with Lynch syndrome. There are several cancer syndromes, and that's why I think it's so important for genetic counselors to be involved, because they can sometimes piece together a family history in a way that maybe another practitioner wouldn't. I think the real benefit of having genetic testing available is the ability to do something because a lot of people feel powerless. Like, well, you know, I have this mutation. I guess I'm just going to get a cancer. But with certain mutations, we can intervene. We can either remove the breast, as Kristen did in the story, and double mastectomy. Some women opt not to do that and would start tamoxifen or some other therapy instead. There are things that we can do to hopefully prolong life and reduce your overall risk of getting cancer. I can remember when Angelina Jolie, yes, one of the more notable, very vocal, about right, that. very yeah. very vocal, and some people criticized her. And I'm thinking, well, number one, it's her body. Number two, when you've had a long line of women in your family who've had these sort of genes and the breast cancer and the cancer risk, I don't blame her for really taking a very hard look and taking that hard line, saying, you know what, let me remove this risk. Yes. Because the chances are pretty doggone good coming from a long line of women who've had breast cancer or ovarian Mm -hmm. cancer. All of those things you have to take a look at. Which one of the BRCA, is it BRCA1 or BRCA2 that deals with ovarian cancer or breast cancer? They both deal with breast and ovarian cancer. BRCA2, more ovarian cancer. BRCA1, higher risk of breast cancer. What age should you be tested for these genes? So that's somewhat controversial. We can really test at any age. We don't test adolescents, but once you hit 18 and above, you really could be tested. The, the sticking point and what I counsel a lot of my younger patients on are insurance discrimination challenges. So from a health insurance perspective, you're safe. You won't be excluded from a health insurance policy for a pre-existing condition. You're covered. But that does not, that same protection does not extend to life insurance and disability insurance. And that's really important. So if you're trying to figure out what you're doing in the long term, I've got a patient in my office who's 24, maybe she's getting married, maybe she's not. Before she tests, because we wouldn't really intervene for a 24-year-old, we're not doing a double mastectomy at 24, we're not taking her ovaries and her fallopian tubes at 24. So before we would intervene 
that's where we say, you know, maybe this is a time when you're young and healthy without a known answer, make sure that you have your life insurance, make sure you have your disability insurance. And then when you get tested, if it's not the test result you're hoping for, you're still covered. That is very interesting. Mm -hmm. There are other genetic diseases that we can pick up, like Lynch syndrome, which has a higher rate of colon cancer and endometrial cancer. So again, it's one of those things that comes back to knowing your family history. I know that some people in my own family are reluctant to discuss the big C. They don't want to talk about what specific cancers people had, but it helps figure out what we should test people for and when we should start screening. Because if you have a family member with colon cancer or a family member with breast cancer, we recommend that you start screening 10 years earlier than that relative was diagnosed. You know, Lisa, one of the things that I think about often is probably one of the hardest questions, but it's one of the easiest. When and how do you bring up health history with your family? Because a lot of times they're like, "Mm -mm, don't ask Uncle James that or don't ask your daddy this or your mama don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully you can start with your immediate family to get a sense of has anybody been sick? Are there any health problems in the family? Has anyone had cancer? And if you get a yes to any of those, then see how open they are to talking about it. Sometimes the further we get from our nuclear family, the harder it is to get answers to those questions. So be gentle and understand you may not. There are some people who are not going to tell you any of their health history because they feel like it's private to them, not totally appreciating that it's part of your story as well. And it may influence what we do and how we can help you to have a healthier life. You know, one of the ways I thought about it, too, because that is really good. I hadn't thought about what you just said. I was taking a physical and they started asking me questions. Mm -hmm. And I called my mom and I said, Mom, you know, the woman was asking me things about your breast cancer and I didn't know the answer. And so my mother's like, well, what do you want to know for? I said, because you're my mother. Yes. And I share what you share. I said, so I couldn't inherit that from somebody down the street. I mean, Mm -hmm. you gave birth to me, so she started laughing. And so I said, so you got to tell me, did they test you for the BRAC1, 2? And she said, yeah. I said, well, do you remember the results? So that was how I started breaking the ice. And uh, I'll just share, in the case of my mom, who was very, very particular about always, always having your breast checked. She would always tell us, go in, make sure you have your breast checked, you know, and check your breasts at home. Always Mm -hmm. check your breast. And so we would do that. But my mother had just had her breast checked and she was going in for regular mammography. Mm -hmm. And the doctor was like, hmm, you know, Mary, that feels real odd. And I want you to come back in tomorrow and let's check that again. And so my mother was 48 at the time. Mm -hmm. She said I had regular mammograms, had never had any problems. Mm -hmm. She goes back in that next day and she said, we are going to do, I think they were doing a needle. A biopsy. Right. Mm -hmm. And she said, not only did they find a mass, it was a really big mass. She said they took that mass and they found another mass in her other breast. Oh, And took that mass. Both breasts? Mm -hmm. So she had a double mastectomy? She did. And now the stuff that they do right there, Mm -hmm. everything is done. And I just marvel at just all of that. And even my mom was like, it was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. And I said, it's so different. I can even remember when she was alive, we talk about it. And she said, 
I was so over it, I didn't know mm-hmm. what to do. It's a blow. No question it's a blow. But even my mother, even then, they didn't talk about it. That stigma that goes mm-hmm. through for women and the support that's there now, how do you as doctors help women and men? I know some men get mm-hmm. it, but how do you help patients get through that? You know, I think it's one day at a time. I'm not an oncologist. Unfortunately, I'm the one who gets to make the first call because they call our office first with the biopsy results. That's not a great conversation to have with anybody. And sometimes we have a good sense going into it. So we've already started the conversation. There are so many support groups now in particular. I think there's so much more awareness and there's less stigma. With breast cancer in particular, there's a higher survival rate than there certainly was in the 80s. There are more women who are survivors and can be support for each other. Clearly, there is a lot to know about women's health, and it changes all the time as science and technology evolves. So if we want to do our part and be informed, how can we know where to find reliable information? Google with care. That's what I tell my patients. Google with care is absolutely right. (laughs) But even the health myths that you hear from patients, when you tell them to Google with care, Mm -hmm. what are some of the things you tell them to Google with care about? Well, pregnancy. Mm. The internet is a wonderful tool for sharing information. But when you start looking for a topic, you can really go down a rabbit hole. So when I I see a patient who has maybe one isolated abnormality on a fetal ultrasound, but everything else is normal, all of their testing up to that point is normal, I say, this is what we found on ultrasound. Don't Google it in isolation (laughs) because you will go down a horrific rabbit hole that I've already evaluated for you. And you... Your baby doesn't have these problems. Everything else is fine. This is an isolated finding. And it's easy to take one isolated finding, type that in, and then you get, hey, this is associated with Down syndrome or another genetic anomaly. But we've already evaluated for that. That's exactly right. And we know that that's not happening in this particular patient. Please be careful. Even when I was pregnant, I would go onto the mommy websites just to figure out like what is everybody saying and then i would type in a question and i would see all these responses and i would like ah i would freak out myself like i have to leave yeah because i know that that's not accurate and i think the other challenge with the internet especially with blogs and chat rooms there is a selection bias if you have a normal healthy pregnancy and you have an uncomplicated delivery, and you have a normal, healthy kid, you do not have time to go on to a mommy blog <laughs> and talk about these That's things. Right. You're right. busy raising your normal, healthy child. So a lot of the, the people who are writing these blogs have suffered a tremendous blow during their pregnancy or after. So it's not to minimize that their experience is real, because it is real, but it makes it seem like it's common when it may not be. And so you do end up with a selection bias leaning more towards people who've had a bad outcome as opposed to people who have had a normal experience. Right. And that in lies the challenge. Now, we can pivot into COVID. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I have seen some myths on the internet that, well, if I thought about, yeah. I'm going to get that as a result of taking the vaccine, I probably would have run. What have you seen? Let's see. Taking the vaccine's going to make me sterile. Nope. They're going to put a chip in me. They can track me. Um, they can track you already. We all have a phone. One 80-year-old man said, you know what? It's going to make me impotent. I'm like, you're 80. <laughs> all of those things. How do you deal with educating people when they come with these things that they absolutely believe from the Internet? I start by asking them why they don't want the vaccine, because everybody has a different view on it. Some people don't want it because it's new and it's only been approved for a short time. They want to see more data. Okay, I understand that. Other people have stumbled upon the false notion that the vaccine causes infertility. That has been categorically disproven, both in terms of bench science, looking at the the mice models for both Moderna and Pfizer, as well as the groups that take care of women, the Society for Maternal and Fetal Medicine, American College of OBGYN, the reproductive endocrinologists, they've all come out and said, this vaccine does not cause infertility. We want women to get pregnant. That's what we do. So the last thing we want is to give our patients something that is going to cause them harm and make them infertile. That's exactly right. I like working. That's right. I like delivering babies. Why would I make my patients infertile? Unfortunately, we have a a culture that has a lot of anti-vaccine sentiment, whether it's measles, month and rubella causing autism, whether it's COVID causing infertility, both things are false. Right. I think it's important to understand that the COVID vaccine came about quickly because many things were happening at the same time. The technology is better. The science is better. It's very specific. But we're just getting better at developing vaccines. And we shared information broadly across countries. So there was a lot more collaboration between different groups of scientists so we could get to the answers faster. Faster doesn't mean less safe. My husband and I were both in the Moderna phase three trial. I was going to ask you about that. Yes, I feel very safe. I right. feel I felt safe taking the vaccine. Unfortunately, we got the placebo and I was bummed about that. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> going through the phase three trial, understanding how long that trial is going to go on, it's still going on. Everybody who is in the phase three trial, that's a 25-month follow-up. They're still getting intermittently tested to look at their antibody levels, it's safe and it's effective. Right. And here's the other piece that I love about you as a person of color. You talk about, oh, my God, even I, black person, I can understand the history, the history of distrust, the medical profession, all of those things. I get it. Yeah, I understand that. But I do follow the science. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the proof. The virus could care what the politics are. But when you look at the science... What say you? It's safe, effective, and it works. Now I'm fully vaccinated. And here's the great thing. We've all been away from the people that we love for so long. Everybody in my family, all of the adults, have been vaccinated. And we were finally able to see my 95-year-old grandmother before she passed. Oh. Yes. And it was 
It was a beautiful thing being able to hug her and not feel like I was a danger to her. That's right. Because I am in healthcare, so I stayed away. I stayed far away from her. We celebrated her 95th birthday outside. I was far away. I was wearing a mask. I think it was the only one. Mm-hmm. And to be able to hug her because she was vaccinated and I was vaccinated and I wasn't a danger to her anymore. That meant everything. So I understand that there are a lot of people who still have vaccine hesitancy, but the ability to get back to the things that we really love, the things that make life worth living, for me, that was a no-brainer. I was like, sign me up. I want my vaccine. I want to get back to normal. You know what? That is a great example that you brought tears to my eyes. And that's great that you did that because being a woman of color, being Mm -hmm. a doctor, you know, I imagine in many ways you set the example for your patients. You set the example for many in your extended family, for neighbors. It is important to let people know it is safe. And educating people about what the side effects are so they know what to expect. Now that I've been through the real vaccine, um, (laughs) I tell people, hey, that second shot can be a doozy. Yes. (laughs) Right? The day after the second shot, you may just want to take the day off. And you may feel fine. My husband felt a little tired. I slept for most of the afternoon. Everybody was different. My dad felt nothing. My mom didn't really feel much either. We all experience the vaccine a little bit differently. Knowing what to expect is important. And not feeling like, oh, my gosh, it gave me COVID. It didn't give you COVID. No. Mm -mm. And even understanding, because it's my understanding, I should say, that there was, for the Moderna trial, they had a hard time getting people of color for that trial group. Yeah. And they really wanted to make sure that they had a good representation of black and brown people so that they could see what that was going to be like. It is important because the more of us who get in that trial... Mm -hmm the more we know what the gamut's going to look like. Absolutely. And it's important that the vaccine is tested in the people who are going to receive it. And that's everybody. So we can't have a disproportionate amount of the test subjects be in one particular category, whatever that category is. We need it to be broadly representative of everybody who's going to receive it. Absolutely. So there has been a lot of weariness among Black folks towards the medical establishment Mm -hmm. in general, right? I've heard it. You've heard it. How has it shown up in your practice, though, being OBGYN? What have you heard? The biggest thing I've heard is safety, that Black women want to feel safe. They want to feel heard And they want to know that when they come in to have their baby, they're not going to die, right? And this is a phenomenon that is unacceptable. Maternal mortality in this country is, it's unacceptable that a woman would die giving birth. Yep. But it happens, and it happens after childbirth, and we follow women for several months, and it can still happen after that and be linked back to pregnancy. But the maternal mortality rate is higher for black and brown women. And why is that? And I know there are people out there who are going to hear this and that, what, what? I wish that I had an answer for that. There's certainly bias that I think people have that they don't realize, this unconscious bias. I think sometimes people are afraid to speak up. I think there are a, a variety of reasons that healthcare doesn't seem to be as equal as it should be. And 
when black women come into my office and we talk about it, they just, they really want to know that they're going to be heard. I'm going to listen. I will listen and my partners listen. I feel very safe in our practice. I delivered in my practice. Most of the women in my family are treated by my partners. And it's not everywhere. It's not that you can't find good health care. It's that it's just we're we're really struggling right now mm-hmm. trying to get a handle on this and trying to make sure that that everybody feels safe. And it's important that you go to all of your prenatal visits because different things come up and sometimes you think it's nothing, but if we look at it, we may feel differently. Right, because if someone like Serena Williams almost dies and you know she's getting the best or you think she's you getting think. the best, and it's like, wait a minute, how did she almost die? That situation has really triggered a lot of concern for many of my patients. We talk about that situation in particular, and I don't have an answer for what happened there. We certainly think about pulmonary embolism a lot. As soon as someone says, I have chest pain, it's like, whoa, well, we need to think about a pulmonary embolus as a possible cause of that chest pain. When I heard her story, it really hurt my heart because I don't understand why that happened. I don't understand why she had to advocate so aggressively for herself where she you know, almost didn't recover. I do know where she said, I begged yes. the doctor. I'm like, you're Serena Williams. Yeah. You had to beg a doctor. You know, I'm like, unbelievable. And then there were some individuals who were saying that some doctors just see Black women as, no, they're strong. They can do this. You can handle this. You'll be fine. I think we need to believe women when they say, this hurts. This is bothering me. That whole situation baffles the mind. Because on some level, I think there's also a myth that it's just a socioeconomic difference. And that Mm -hmm. as long as you are at a certain socioeconomic level, you're fine. And as long as you go to a certain hospital, you're fine. But Serena's case very much demonstrates that that's not true. Mm -mm. I've told one patient recently that if she wants a doula because she really feels like she wants to have somebody there to help advocate for her who understands the process more, I said, by all means, have your doula, have your husband. You can have two visitors with you. Whatever you feel like you need to feel comfortable. And it's really her birth experience. But I've seen the real concern and borderline terror for some of my my patients, they are afraid they are not going to make it home after giving birth. I've seen more of that recently than I had at any other point in my career. But it just, it makes me sad to feel like that because we don't want to lose a patient. We're the happy specialty, right? We're the (laughs) sunshine of the house. We've got the moms, we've got the babies. So the idea that I have a significant number of patients who think that they're not going to leave the hospital, like, whoa, you know, maternal death. I've Rarely see, haven't seen one in years, I think 10 years at this point. And I don't want to. I don't want to see another one. That's not the business that we're in. Mm-mm. No, that no. It, it just breaks my heart. There's also, I think, one of the challenges is having enough diversity in the healthcare population so that you have physicians who 
look like you, who have shared cultural experiences. There are cultural experiences that are different. And I think when you come from a similar background, some subtle things you may pick up on differently, or you may understand that in your particular culture, maybe you don't talk about X problem, Mm -hmm. right? But you know that it's there. Exactly. That helps. Does it also make you be even more attentive because you know the feeling? I know the feeling. So I do try to be more attentive. And I think fortunately in our community, we do have more black OBGYNs, but we are missing. I still haven't found a black PCP and we've all been asking each other. So I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure that we have them. I just haven't happened to meet them. Because I'm looking. Right? I know. Everybody's looking. So if you're out there, send me an email. Could just send us an email. <laughs> because we're trying to find you. It's like a unicorn. Yeah, we've got emergency medicine. We've got surgery. OBGYN. This might be another podcast. There's someone out there. Getting more information about my options and taking charge really helped me feel better. Yeah, I mean, I was doing it. I was the one making the decisions and I was the one doing the research and finding the right people. You know, I think that's just so helpful to have providers on your team, doctors on your team who are going to be honest with you because it's not all, you know sunshine and roses, right? It comes with consequences and it comes with its own challenges, but the good outweighs the bad. Kristen was able to make an informed decision that empowered her, but how do we know what information is reliable and what isn't? My guest today is Dr. Lisa Wynn, Chief OBGYN at Highlands Ranch Hospital. What do you tell your patients who want to research online? That is the biggest challenge. Welcome back, by the way. Thank you. It is a big challenge. And I think finding reliable sources is so important. I recommend going to places like the American College of OBGYN. That's where we go to get our information. And there's also a space for patients to get information that's a little easier to understand. So that's one place to start. Also going to university websites. So going to uchealth.org, very helpful. But there are many university-based websites around the country that have good sources of information. For heart issues, American Heart Association, for cancer issues, American Cancer Society, cdc.gov is great. When you put into your search a generic category, you're really looking for .edu, yeah. .gov, .org, .coms. Eh. <laughs> Buyer beware a little bit. Buyer yeah. beware. Yeah. And that makes sense. And clearly, if you think about it, there is a lot to know about women's health and the changes because there are so many changes all the time with science and technology. Yes. So if we want to do our part and be informed, how can we know when you're looking at that reliable information, deciphering the good from the bad? Is that something that we bring to the doctor? I think that is something you bring to your doctor. Okay. Because it's frequently more nuanced trying to figure out, well, does this particular study apply to me or my condition? That's a conversation to have with your doctor. So I think researching before you go in and coming up with a list of questions or concerns that you may have, 
I think that's great. One of the things, too, and I've even talked to one of my girlfriends recently about this. She will share things with me that sometimes she's apprehensive to talk to the doctor about. And I say, why won't you talk to your doctor? The doctor's a female. You're female. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard sometimes for women to advocate for themselves? I think sometimes things are embarrassing. Yeah. We grow up in a society that... We're not supposed to talk about our vagina or our vulva. And if you have a problem there, it's kind of embarrassing. And you may not want to talk to anybody about it. If we don't talk to our doctors about our vaginas or our vulvas, mm -hmm. how are we to get any good advice? How do you talk women off of that ledge? Because I'm sure you've had to have conversations. Yeah, they're not the only. Yeah. Whether it's an adolescent in my office who can't place a tampon, which I see probably once a quarter, mm -hmm. they're not the only. And they're embarrassed and they're crying and we talk about it. We go through the anatomy. I think the important thing to know is you're not the only. Somebody else has had this before. Maybe even the same day. Maybe even the person you were sitting next to in the waiting room. These are not unique problems. And if you have something that's bothering you, talk to a doctor. I don't think that your uterus should run your life. If it's uncomfortable, if your periods are horrible, if you have itching or discharge, talk to somebody. We can come up with a way to help you. Some things are a little more difficult to treat than others, but in general, we've seen it, we can treat it. Right. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things where they think, this is so unique to me. Right. It's not. It may not even be unique that day. Here's another thing. I understand there are a lot of women who suffer from pelvic floor problems after childbirth, but once again, a lot of misinformation around that. Can you talk about some of the myths related to pelvic floor issues and what can cause it other than childbirth? So one big myth is that it's normal to pee on yourself after you have a baby, right? So many women think, I had a baby, and now I just pee on myself. When I cough, laugh, sneeze, jump up and down, that's normal. Well, it's common, but that doesn't mean it's normal. Mm -hmm. So just because all of your friends also have the same problem doesn't mean that it's normal. We do have a field of pelvic floor physical therapy, which is a tremendous asset. And sometimes I suggest that, and people look at me like, what? <laughs> <laughs> You want me to do what? <laughs> but your pelvic floor is so many muscles intertwined together, no different really than your leg, your ankle, your knee. So when you have groups of muscles and they get stretched out or you have ligaments that get stretched out, they need to be recovered. They need therapy to get back to where they used to be. And so the pelvic floor physical therapist offer a tremendous service, especially to women who've recently had a baby. So going in early, some women will go during pregnancy. We send some of our patients during pregnancy, but certainly after, whether it was a vaginal delivery or a C-section, seeing somebody to help just get those pelvic floor muscles back to their stronger point. Maybe right. you won't get back to baseline, but hopefully you'll get to a better position right? so that you don't have to have surgery to treat your stress incontinence, which is not normal. What's the Kegel? The, ke <laughs> so the, the Kegel exercise is a contraction of your pelvic floor muscles. Okay. Think like you're holding an egg mm -hmm. and you're trying to suck it into your vagina and you're okay. squeezing just that entry point to the vagina and you're tightening all of the muscles right around there. So you're trying to strengthen that. Okay. So that's your Kegel. And you hold it for five to 10 seconds and you release. And then you do that 
10 times, a few times a day. Okay. At a stoplight, for example. Okay. And see, and that's really, really good because once again, just like you're doing biceps, triceps, you're doing hamstring. I mean, Mm -hmm. all these things, all of these things are muscles. You can strengthen that muscle. Yes. You can jump on a trampoline again. Right. (laughs) Yay. We absolutely want to jump on a trampoline again. Those things are very, very important. What age do women usually reach menopause? 51. That's the average age of menopause, which means some women will be younger and some women will be older. And we do tend to follow our moms. So if your mother was a little bit older when she went through menopause, then you can expect that you may be a little bit older as well. That brings me to my next question. Why would someone go through menopause early? You can go through menopause early because you're genetically predisposed to going through menopause early. Hmm. All the women in your family go through menopause in their early 40s. It's not premature ovarian failure or early menopause unless you're under the age of 40 when your ovaries stop. It could be cancer. It could be medications. Surgery could do it, radiation, depending on your personal history, but anything that can cause an insult to your ovaries. But Kristen, let's get back to her. Yes. She mentioned that she went into full-blown menopause mm-hmm. after having her ovaries removed. And that must that must have been really hard. How do you counsel your patients when that happens? Surgical menopause is tough. It's abrupt. And you go from having a normal level of estrogen to having very little or no estrogen, it's so abrupt. So you do need to prepare for hot flashes, night sweats. For women who are able to take estrogen replacement, then we start them on it right away, but not everybody is able to. So there are non-hormonal options to help treat the hot flashes and night sweats. And having a plan before you go through surgery is so important. So you know what to expect because it's, it's not fun. Oh, my goodness. Dr. Wynn, I could talk to you all day. I could talk to you all day. (laughs) (laughs) A wealth of information. Thank you for all that you do and for what you represent. Thank you. She has joined me and you today, and we absolutely love her. So to sum it up, I've got five takeaways from Dr. Wynn debunking health myths, and they are, number one, knowledge is power. Start by finding out your family's history, since it can really be a game changer and really the roadmap for your health history. Number two, be careful when searching online for medical information. Check the website to see if there are peer-reviewed studies and experts quoted, reputable experts quoted. Number three, take actionable steps like booking an appointment with your doctor rather than worrying yourself sick on the internet and going down the rabbit hole. Number four, use your research to prepare questions for your doctor. Got to do that because then you get actionable information backed up by an expert. And number five, if in doubt, get multiple medical opinions so you can compare them all and make the best choice for your family. To follow up on today's episode, you can check out our show notes at uchealth.org forward slash every. And every is spelled E-V-R-E. To find out more about today's expert, you can visit uchealth.org. Thank you for joining us. Please do not forget to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio Podcast. To find out more about our subject today, you can visit us at uchealth.org forward slash every. 
Every is produced by UC Health. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.